Please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. Uh, our passage for this morning is James 2, 14 to 26. Once again, that's James 2, 14 through 26. Uh, if you've been in our Sunday school over the past few weeks, then you know uh, that one of the topics uh, that we've been discussing this quarter is the importance of the doctrine of man. The doctrine of man, I've said, is one of the most important doctrines that uh, you could ever study because this doctrine, perhaps more than any other you will ever study, will determine the types of decisions that you make in your life. In fact, as R.C. Sproul uh, says in the very first lecture in this Sunday school class that we've been in, uh, he says, how human beings understand their own existence determines how they think, how they behave, and the type of culture they produce. Uh, I think if you want a great example of how this works, then you don't need to look any further than with the definition of life and death. When you get into a culture's laws, for instance, about things like abortion or euthanasia, a, a large part of that discussion will be governed by one's definition of life and death. Most everyone would agree that it's wrong to murder and that murder should therefore be against the law. The question is, though, what constitutes murder? Murder, of course, constitutes the, the malicious taking of a human life. Again, most everyone would agree on a basic definition of murder. What isn't as clear, or at least what is now presently debated, is what qualifies as human life. The relevance to this question is perhaps most evident in the debate over Abortion. Most pro-choice advocates claim that life does not begin at conception, that it starts much later in the pregnancy, which would then mean that any abortion before that date would not qualify as murder and should be legal. Evangelical Christians, on the other hand, tend to claim that life begins at conception, and so all abortions are therefore murder and should be outlawed. In other words, contrary to the way some people want to frame it, the question uh, when we talk about abortion, is not whether a woman should be allowed to murder her child for the sake of her own personal convenience. The question, rather, at least in the saner versions of this discussion, is whether the unborn fetus qualifies as human life. Uh, the pro-choice advocate typically says no. Uh, the evangelical Christian, though, says yes. And so our understanding of how so basic a law as do not murder should be applied, how that law should be applied, differs because we have two very different perspectives on the definition of life and death. And again, this has become incredibly apparent in the discussion over abortion. But the issues are just as relevant when it comes to the subject of euthanasia. Now, when I term the, use the term euthanasia, your mind probably uh, jumps immediately to uh, Dr. Kevorkian and his death machine, or uh, perhaps to the systematic execution of the mentally handicapped and the infirm in Nazi Germany. However, the bulk of the discussion over the ethics of euthanasia lies not in whether it should be permissible to kill off undesirable parts of society for the benefit of the whole, or even whether a person should have the right to seek a physician's help in committing suicide. No, the, the, the bulk of the ethical challenges related to euthanasia, revolve around when it is permissible or when it is even good or wise to remove individuals from life support. Again, there seems to be a general consensus that it's wrong to actively take a human life, and most especially without their consent, but is that what's happening when you disconnect people suffering from various states of brain damage from life support? The question, once again, comes around to one's definition of life and death. Just as one's definition for the beginning of life dictates whether or not it should be permissible to perform an abortion, so also does one's definition for the end of life dictate whether or not it should be permissible to take a person off life support. For the Christian, these, the answers to these types of questions revolve around the concept of the human soul. If we're asking the question, is a person dead or are they alive, then the answer comes down to whether or not their soul is present. That's because we believe that a person is made of both material and immaterial substance, that the most essential aspect of the person, the part that can even be separated from the body, is the soul. So for us, death is a rather black and white issue. Uh, even if it is challenging to determine just precisely when it occurs. 
A person is dead when their soul departs. If the soul is gone, it doesn't matter if a machine is making the heart pump and the lungs breathe, they're still dead. There's no person there. For the unbeliever, however, these questions are not as clear-cut. If you're coming at these questions from an atheistic perspective, for instance, there is no immaterial part of the person to provide a clear distinction between life and death, either by the soul's presence or its absence, because people don't have a soul. And so how do you determine if someone is dead or alive? Well, it gets kind of complicated. And it's only become more complicated as medical technology has advanced. You see, up until the 1960s, it was more or less assumed that if a person stopped breathing and then remained in that state, then they were dead. And that definition tended to work because oxygen is such a vital component to human life that once a person stops breathing, the rest of their body starts to shut down almost immediately. I mean, you can go days without food or water, right? So you you can't say someone is dead just because they haven't eaten. I can look out in the congregation. I'm not going to assume that any of you are dead because you don't have a donut stuffed in your mouth right now, right? It'd be different, though, if I didn't see you breathing. Okay? Because while we can survive for days without, uh, and even weeks without food or water at times, you can only go a few minutes without air. No, we don't die the moment we start to hold our breath, but if it's been 15 or 30 minutes without air, that's probably a good indicator that your entire body has shut down and you're dead. Or at least that's how it worked up until the 1960s. That's about the time that CPR was developed. It was about the time the artificial respirator was invented. Suddenly it became, impo- it became possible to help people breathe after their body stopped doing it on their own, sometimes even after the body had stopped breathing for several minutes. Basically, we learned how to pause and to even reverse the death process. And the reason why that's a problem is because the body does have a kind of shutdown procedure where various organs go offline as they're deprived of oxygen. And what we discovered is that while we could make most of these organs work again through the use of machines, there's one organ that can't always, we can't always bring back online after it's been turned off. And that's the most significant of all, not only because it controls the rest, but because it's also the organ that we tend to associate with personhood. And that's the brain the organ that produces consciousness. At that point in history, the question became, if the body still functions, even with the help of a machine, is a person really dead? I think this question is particularly challenging for the unbeliever. After all, if a person is only material, if they're only defined by their body, then it's hard to say that they're not alive. But then again, without the functioning of the brain... Is it still fair to say that there's a person there? These types of questions have forced doctors to come up with new definitions of death. In 1968, for instance, Harvard Medical School developed a definition of death that included, number one, the lack of response to external stimuli, number two, the absence of spontaneous muscular movements and spontaneous respiration, number three, no elicitable reflexes, and number four, a flat EEG. In 1981, the Uniform Determination of Death Act defined death as the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory functions and the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brain stem. In other words, brain death is now more or less the standard in defining death. And even that standard has been challenged in recent years. There's emerging evidence, for instance, that a sustained flat EEG does not always indicate brain death. All to say, death can be kind of hard to define, and that that matters because there's clearly a difference between someone who's been knocked out by anesthesia and someone who's dead. There's a difference between someone who hasn't eaten for the past 24 hours and someone who hasn't breathed for the past 24 hours. So if someone is going to be pronounced either dead or alive, there needs to be a concrete set of criteria to establish those parameters in order to know what to do with them. I, I doubt anyone in here wants to be taken to the morgue next time. They take an especially long nap. Okay. So the medical community has had these types of discussions over the years. And incidentally, so has the church. The only difference, of course is that it's not the physical life 
that the church is concerned with. So much as the spiritual life. Just like doctors have asked the question, what are the indicators of physical life and death? So also have Christians asked themselves, what are the indicators of spiritual life and death? This is a question that's obviously important for for churches to know. Uh, It's very helpful, for instance, in trying to define membership. It's helpful for no, for example, whether a person is spiritually alive, whether they're members of the universal church before they're admitted to membership in the local church. And in the same way, it's critical for a church to be aware of the signs of spiritual death if they're going to faithfully administer the process of church discipline. So this is a, a distinction that churches need to know. But even more so, this is a distinction that each and every individual Christian needs to know. After all, we have, we have repeated warnings in Scripture that not everyone who merely thinks they're saved is in fact saved. There's apparently a false kind of profession that can masquerade as a genuine faith and even deceive someone into thinking they're a Christian when they're not. Well, if that's the case, then what does that false profession look like? How can a person know if they've been deceived into thinking that they've been reconciled to God? This is a critically important question for Christians to answer, but we have to be very careful in how we answer it, Because in the way we answer this question, guys, we define the gospel. By setting parameters for spiritual life and death, we're establishing a definition for what salvation is and what it is not. So while we need to search out the answers for this sort of question, we need to be very careful in the conclusions we arrive at. Since to err too far on either one side or the other in our definition of spiritual life is to risk a shipwreck of our faith. In today's passage, James steers us through the narrow passage that defines the difference between spiritual life and death, and he safely guides us to an answer. Let's go ahead and see what he has to say about this issue. Our text, once again, is James 2, 14-26. And James writes this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Under the current uh, definitions of life and death, doctors check for key vital signs before determining whether or not a patient is alive or dead. Uh, This will include things like a patient's pulse, respiration rate. In some cases, they'll even check for brain waves with an EEG. Well, in the same way, in this morning's passage, James indicates that he checks for two key vital signs when assessing the state of a Christian's faith. This morning, we're going to look at the first of these two signs, and the first vital sign is this. Number one, Movement. Movement. James says that a living faith is a moving faith. I've entitled this morning's passage, A Mortified Faith. And just to be clear, that's the, that's the English major at work in me. That's supposed to be a play on words. You see, the word mortified can mean a couple different things. When we use it today, we tend to associate it with the concept of embarrassment. When someone does something humiliating, they might say, for instance, I was absolutely mortified. 
Now, I doubt very many people would talk that way, but still it happens. In fact, that's probably the more familiar use of that term. But the word mortify, it actually comes from the Latin mortificare, which means to kill or to subdue. That's the same word from which we get the term mortuary. This was the original meaning of the word mortify. It meant to kill or to subdue. In other words, when we say, I was mortified, what we're usually saying is either I wanted to die, or even I was so petrified with embarrassment to the degree that it was like I died. I mean, you guys, I think, you know how that works, right? You do something that's embarrassing, and you either want to go running out of the room and crawl under a rock and just disappear, or you're so shocked by what just happened that you freeze because you don't know what to do. You're trying to you know, figure out how to undo what you just did or how to redeem that action that caused you so much embarrassment. Well, when I use this phrase, a mortified faith, I mean it in the second sense. Of a faith that takes on the appearance of death through inaction. Well, there are many indicators of, of uh, spiritual life that we could look for. Uh, James, in this context, he sees that the chief indicator is mortification. Mortification can be used in a medical context to refer to a limb that is suffering from gangrene. It can be said that it's mortified, it's rotting away, there's no life in it. Usually that's a sign that the limb needs to be amputated. James assesses a person's faith in the same way. He says that faith needs to show signs of life in order for it to be valid. It is a dead faith if it shows signs of mortification. And what are the signs of life? How does one know whether a faith is living or dead? It's action. If a faith is moving, then it's alive. If it's not, then it's dead. It's mortified. We see this bear itself out in several points, but perhaps none is so clear as the refrain which occurs in this passage three times, once in verse 17, again verse 20, and then verse 26, where James says in one form or another, faith without works is dead. Verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 20, he makes a very similar statement, only this time swapping out useless for dead. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Finally, in verse 26, he gives perhaps the clearest statement of all. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I say that this statement is the clearest in this refrain because I think this one so vividly illustrates James' point. You see, you know how I said that death was defined as the cessation of breathing up until about the 1960s? Well, that's actually how the Bible tends to define death as well. You see it as early as Genesis 2, where God breathes into man's nostrils and he begins to live. You see it again in the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. A vast army of bodies are resurrected and sinews and muscles and flesh are added to them. And then this great wind sweeps into the valley and their breath comes into them and they live. The Bible tends to associate breath with life. In fact, it makes such a strong connection between breath and life that it even associates breath with the presence of the Spirit. Again, you know how I said that for the Christian, the distinction between life and death is defined by the presence or absence of the soul? Well, the Bible tends to associate the absence of the soul, the withdrawal of the Spirit, with the cessation of breathing. This is perhaps most clearly illustrated in Psalm 104 when speaking of the animal kingdom. The psalmist says, These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. And then he says, When you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your spirit, they're created and renew the face of the ground. The idea in passages like this is that the Spirit is the Spirit that energizes and animates life. 
and is the primary in the, in the primary indication of this presence is the breath. In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, means simply breath. And so when James says, for the body apart from the spirit is dead, as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead, he's essentially saying, just as you can tell that the body is dead once the force that animates it has been removed, just as you can tell whether a person is merely asleep or dead by whether or not their chest is heaving up and down, so also faith that isn't moving is clearly dead. That's a pretty simple illustration, isn't it? I mean, we can, all, we can all grasp the basic point that James is saying there. Do you want to know if someone is spiritually alive? It's not hard. Do they move at all? That's one of the ways that doctors test for life. In fact, in the 1968 definition of death that I read earlier from Harvard Medical School, of the four points they used to define death, three had to do with movement. No response to external stimuli. Uh, Absence of spontaneous muscular movements and spontaneous respiration. And no elicitable reflexes. Well, James says it's the exact same thing for the Christian. If you want to know if someone is alive, then check for movement. Unfortunately, as simple as this point is to grasp, it's not been without its own kind of controversy over the years. The reason for this controversy becomes apparent when you get to verse 24. And in the course of explaining this analogy, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. If you've been in a Protestant church for more than a couple weeks, or if you ever had the good fortune to grow up attending a group like Awana or Bible Drill or even a VBS then no doubt you can perceive the controversy that might arise from that sort of a statement. One of the very first verses that evangelical Christians teach their children is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Apostle Paul was very clear in indicating that we are saved not by works, but through faith. And so it would seem as if James is directly contradicting the teachings of the Apostle Paul in verse 24. So what's going on here? One of the hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation is the belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Do, do we therefore stand in opposition to James according to what he writes here in verse 24? Or for that matter, does this demonstrate a contradiction in the Scripture? Does, does James stand in opposition to Paul? There are some who think so. Remember that this epistle was probably written to Jewish Christians living in and around the region of Antioch. And it was written very early on in the development of the church, uh, likely sooner even than Paul's second trip to Jerusalem, which he mentions in the book of Galatians, meaning that it was probably written to the Jews of that region about the time that Paul was cutting his ministerial teeth in and around the region where he was working at the time. This has led some to go so far as to think that Paul actually is the foolish fellow referred to in verse 20. Martin Luther, for his part, that the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, was so convinced of the anti-Pauline nature of this epistle based on chapter 2 that he even famously made efforts to see it removed from the canon, calling it, quote, a right strawy epistle, for has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. However, those who make these claims seem to ignore the kind of harmony that the Scriptures tell us that James and Paul enjoyed. For example, it's probably not insignificant that Luke informs us that it was none other than James himself who publicly affirmed Paul's ministry before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Likewise, Paul speaks well of James in the very letter where he addresses the issue of salvation by faith alone, the strongest, the book of Galatians. 
Yes, it would seem that there may have been some representatives from James who seemed to miss the point when they came to Antioch, but regarding James himself, Paul says that he approved of Paul's ministry. He says Galatians 2, 6-10, to he says, And from those who seem to be influential, uh, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to the gospel of the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Kephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's significant. Because when Paul writes those words, he writes it in relation to the Jerusalem council, which the epistle of James precedes. And Paul says that the leaders in Jerusalem added nothing to his ministry. In other words, he notes that neither James nor anyone else corrected his teaching in any way. They were in perfect accord regarding the nature of Paul's gospel. So whatever we think about the apparent contradictions between James' teaching and Paul's, based on what we find here in chapter 2 and what Paul writes in his letters, James and Paul themselves apparently didn't see any contradiction whatsoever. Instead, they each seemed to affirm the other. So it would seem as, as both, that, that both men had disciples who maybe misunderstood their teaching, Some of James' followers, it seems, probably took James' emphasis on action to the degree that Paul had to correct them, according to Galatians 2. And it would seem that perhaps some of Paul's followers are distorting his emphasis on faith, which James may be taking to task here. Perhaps their people uh, have been influenced by Paul that he's writing to. Perhaps not. Either way, according to verse 18, there would seem to be a group of people saying, you have faith and I have works, as if those are two distinct gifts. As if some people demonstrate their relationship with Christ by virtue of their complete reliance on His sacrifice in the absence of works, while others demonstrate their relationship by doing what He commanded. James corrects these types of Christians by saying, no, that's not how Christianity works. That's not how faith works. Paul himself gave several statements that would agree with James on the necessity of works. In Romans 8.13, for instance, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And contextually, that's clearly a reference to eternal life. So even the Apostle Paul saw some type of connection between faith and obedience. So it seemed to be a bit of an overstatement to say that James and Paul disagreed with one another. Well, if that's the case, then how can James then say here that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Some have tried to reconcile this passage with Paul's teachings by saying that James is addressing a completely separate issue from Paul. Uh, the word for justify here means literally to be pronounced or treated as righteous. Uh, Paul very clearly uses that in a legal or forensic sense, describing God's declaration of the sinner as not guilty. Some say this isn't the way that James is using it. They claim rather that James is making a statement about the sinner's moral righteousness. Like this isn't declare righteous in terms of their legal standing before God, but instead in relation to how God regards their religious practice. In other words, James is reiterating the same point that Jesus made so many years earlier when he said that God demands compassion, not sacrifice. God is pleased with a faith that expresses itself in action. He regards that as a truly righteous expression of faith, not the type of faith practiced by the hypocrites who merely say and do not do. The only problem is that in verse 14, regarding this faith, James asks, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So he does seem to be talking about salvation here. And that means it's probably safe to assume that he is discussing the Christian's legal standing before God, not merely God's estimate of the quality of their actions. 
So then, how do we bring these two ideas together? How can Paul say that we're saved by grace through faith and not by the works of the law on one hand, and James say that we're justified by works and not by faith alone on the other? The resolution seems to be that James and Paul are talking about the same thing, but from two very different perspectives. The issue that Paul is addressing when he says that salvation is by grace through faith, he's talking about the basis or ground of salvation. A person receives salvation through faith alone, and that's because it's given by grace alone according to the finished work of Christ alone. We contribute nothing. We will enter into the Father's presence solely on the basis of what Christ has done for us at the cross and nothing else. The issue that James is addressing is the proof or evidence, and if you're reading closely here, it's the proof or evidence not even of salvation, but of faith. You see this come out in the second half of verse 18. James says, Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So it would, it would seem that James wouldn't disagree with the idea that salvation is by grace through faith and not in any way dependent on one's deeds, not in the strictest sense of that word dependent. Salvation does not rest on one's works, James would say. They are not a prerequisite or a requirement for salvation. In fact, in verse 22, James even indicates that he believes that faith actually precedes works when he says that Abraham's faith was, quote, active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. The word for completed there is the verb teleao, which means to complete or finish. In other words, there's an incipient faith in verse 22 which precedes works, but which at the same time is brought to completion or perfection by one's works. So again, again, James isn't saying that salvation is not by faith alone. His point, rather, concerns the quality of genuine faith. And he's saying that true faith, saving faith, is evidenced by works. If I could put it this way, the issue that Paul is addressing is how does one receive life? The issue that he's concerned with is more the matter of conception. And what he says is that grace alone is the basis. Eternal life isn't earned, it's given. And it's given through faith alone. That's the mechanism or instrument through which grace is received. The Spirit, again, animates the Christian that moment they believe, and in that moment they draw their first spiritual breath. Just like you don't earn your physical life by breathing, or by making your heart beat, you receive it, rather, when you're conceived by an outside force... That can be an outside force in the form of human instrumentation, as when a couple decides to have a child, or it can be in the sense of divine instrumentation, as when God decides to make the conception successful. Either way, there is a choice to give life which occurs apart from anything that the conceived has done. All life is given by grace in this sense. None of it is earned upon its initial reception. Well, just like our physical lives are conceived by grace apart from any of our efforts to bring ourselves into being, so also is spiritual life, and with it salvation, given by grace apart from any sort of human merit. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2.1, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, meaning that we were unable to respond to external stimuli. We can no more respond to the things of God than a corpse could respond to a poke with a stick. But God, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. And then Paul, and then Paul clarifies his point by saying, by grace you have been saved. So spiritual life is given in the same way as physical life. It's a gift of divine grace apart from any contribution on the part of the sinner. 
As Paul says just a couple of verses later, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. He makes very clear, as it relates to our salvation, we contribute nothing. Even the faith that we exercise, the very spiritual breath that we breathe, it is not our own doing, Paul says. Everything about our salvation is a gift so that no one may boast. That is the point that Paul is making when he talks about salvation by grace through faith. He's talking about the gift of spiritual life. It's the same way that Jesus talks about it in John 3. When he says that in order to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Explaining, do not marvel what I said to you. He says, you must be born again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The idea is that you can no more control the conditions of the new birth than you can control or predict the wind. Spiritual life is, in, is completely and entirely a gift of God. James is addressing the same issue, but from an entirely different perspective. What he wants to discuss is, how does one know that life is currently present and abiding? Yes, our salvation is founded upon the work of Christ alone, and it's received by grace alone, through faith alone. But how can we know whether or not such faith is there that is present in the one who calls themselves Christian? How do we know that they possess that kind of spiritual life? A doctor would ask questions like, you know, is there a heartbeat? Is there breathing? Is there any indication of brain waves? James asks, is there movement? Think of it like this. If a conception occurred, and then the doctors went in to check on the baby, and there was no heartbeat or no movement. The doctor wouldn't turn to the parent and say, you know what, there's, there's no heartbeat, but I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Everything should still turn out all right in the end. After all, the fact that I can see that there's a baby there on this ultrasound proves that this has been a successful conception. No, that's what's called a stillbirth. And it's a tragedy. It indicates that the pregnancy has failed, the child has died. This seems to be more of what James is after. He's not claiming that salvation is not by grace through faith. He's attempting to assess whether or not the faith that's claimed is a living faith. You go back to chapter 1, verses 13 to 19, and he compares these two different pregnancies. You'll remember these two different conceptions. There's the conception of sin, which is conceived when our desires meet temptation, and which, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And then there's the Christian's conception who is brought forth by God through the word of truth. In chapter 1, verse 21, James likewise speaks of the necessity to receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. This is the sort of framework that James is working in when he starts discussing faith. And the issue he's addressing has less to do about how the conception occurs and more to do with whether or not it's been successful, so to speak. Or to shift analogies for a moment, uh, uh, James also will compare faith to a kind of seed. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he says that the Christian is supposed to be the part of the harvest that is dedicated to God, the first fruits. Well, if you plant a seed and it never sprouts, that's not a successful crop. The Scripture constantly speaks in these terms. Uh, John the Baptist, for instance, declared, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus says in John 15, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. He says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Even the parable of the sower You guys are familiar with that parable, right? The parable of the sower. There's some seed that falls along the path, 
and is eaten by the birds. Some falls on the rocky ground, and the plants that spring up are immediately scorched by the noonday sun. Some falls among the thorns and is immediately choked out. There's only one type of seed that takes, and that's the type of seed that falls on the good soil. All the other soils come in contact with the seed. Some even appear to receive it for a period of time, but there's only one type of seed that's successful, and that's the type that takes root and eventually bears grain. This is what James is addressing. What kind of seed has taken root? You have to keep in mind, the Scripture tells us that people will be judged not according to the truth that they do not know or understand, but by the truth they do know. It's not for ignorance that they're condemned. As it says in Romans 5, sin is not counted where there is no law. No, when people are condemned, they will be condemned for what they do know. And you see this fact bear itself out, even in this passage. Verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's clearly possible to know the truth and still be condemned to eternal death, as is evidenced by no less than the very demons that wage their war against the God that they do know. So it's not enough to merely know the truth. One must receive it if they're going to be saved. And that's evidenced by their fruit. It's evidenced by their actions. I I like the way one commentator puts it. He says, James is not really contrasting faith and works as if these were two alternate options in one's approach to God. He is, rather, contrasting a faith that because it is inherently defective produces no works and a faith that because it is genuine does result in action. Are you guys catching the difference there? James' problem isn't the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, but the misapplication of that truth. Someone cannot say, I have faith, and then not do the things that God commands. That kind of faith, James says, is dead. James illustrates this point with two examples, the most significant of which is Abraham. As Paul points out in Romans 4, Abraham was declared righteous by God when he believed the promise that God made to him in Genesis 15. Romans 4, 2-4, Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He says that with reference to the The fact that Abraham believed the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of the Abrahamic covenant, when God made that promise with him in Genesis 15. But as James points out here in verses 21 to 23, that faith was fulfilled. The word there being plerao, which means to fill up or bring to completion, his faith was fulfilled when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. If you were to turn to Genesis 22, you'd see what James means by this. In verse 12, when the angel of the Lord calls out to Abraham and tells him to stop the sacrifice, explaining, listen to this, the angel says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham had a saving faith in God back in Genesis 15 when he believed God, And it was at that time credited to him as righteousness. But at that time, there was nothing to give evidence to that faith. It was only expressed internally. The proof, so to speak, of that saving faith, the evidence that it's been there, and that it's been there as early as Genesis 15, emerges when Abraham reaches out his hand to strike down his son Isaac based on the belief, Hebrews tells us, that God would raise His Son from the dead. Thus, His obedience serves to fulfill or complete His faith. The seed was planted in Genesis 15, but Genesis 22 is the fruit. It's the evidence that the seed that was planted was a living and abiding seed. In this way, Abraham's actions vindicate or prove the existence of his faith. 
His actions demonstrate that he has exercised the kind of faith that justifies. Again, the word for justify in verse 24, it means to declare uh, just or righteous. And as one commentator notes, he says, quote, James probably assumes a forensic meaning of the term, indicating the status of rightness that Abraham attained with God. Abraham's works, especially his offering of Isaac, listen to this here, reveal the character of his faith. A faith that is crediting for righteousness. In other words, the way that James is using this word, it's not the moment of salvation that he's concerned with. So much as judgment. You see, you have to reconcile the Pauline passages which say that salvation is entirely of grace and not according to one's works with the passages that indicate that God will determine who does or who does not enter His kingdom to some degree on the basis of their deeds. It's like I said a moment ago, regarding the Christ, John the Baptist says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Like Jesus Himself says in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit He prunes that it may bear more fruit. In fact, as Jesus says, in perhaps the clearest and most startling statement of all, He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And look how he clarifies this. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I could go on. In Matthew 26, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Jesus rejects the goats on the basis of their treatment of his disciples. And he accepts the sheep for the same reason. Hebrews 10 says that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Hebrews 12 speaks of the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There seems to be at least some sense in which the Scripture tells us that while salvation is by grace through faith, when the day of judgment comes, God is going to take our deeds into account. So how do you reconcile those two ideas? I think James shows us here with this example from Abraham. It's on the basis of our faith that we receive salvation, but it's on the basis of our deeds that our faith is verified and confirmed. This is why James can say that a person is justified, that is to say, declared righteous by works and not by faith alone. He's not saying that justification will occur apart from faith or on the basis of anything other than faith. He's just saying that the faith that justifies will be proven or vindicated by one's deeds. It's like he says back in verse 22, Abraham's faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So the evidence of Abraham's justifying faith was his works. Thus, Abraham is declared righteous, according to James, not by faith alone. This is so critical. Again, Jesus says that there will be many on the day of judgment that will claim a kind of relationship with him, but Jesus says that he'll turn them away saying he never knew them. How can Jesus make that distinction? On what basis or evidence will he say to the one who says, I believe, enter into my kingdom, and then then to the other who also says, I believe, depart from me. I mean, they're both claiming a relationship with Jesus on the same basis. So how does Jesus distinguish between the one whose profession is genuine and the one whose profession is false? Jesus gives the answer. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus isn't going to reject their profession without any evidence. No, he's a just judge, meaning he's not going to condemn anyone in the absence of evidence and sound facts. So the ones he'll turn away, the ones to whom he'll say, I don't accept your testimony, he'll do so on the evidence of their works, or lack thereof. And once again, that's not because works are the means of their salvation, but rather because such works are the evidence of their faith. 
That's what James is driving at here with Abraham. Abraham was justified by his works in the sense that his works pointed back to the existence of a genuine and sincere justifying faith. If I could put it this way, when we get to heaven, God is going to check for vital signs. Yes, the foundation and basis of the Christian's justification is the righteousness of Christ alone. It will not be their deeds that qualify them to enter into the presence of God. But at the same time, God is going to distinguish between the type that merely claims to know Jesus while not yet truly knowing Him from the one who actually knows Him. And how is He going to do that? He'll do it according to the vital signs. He'll do it according to the evidence of the life in them. So let me ask you this. I'm assuming that most of you are here this morning because you claim to know Jesus. I doubt you'd be here if you didn't. Uh, You might come for a few weeks, right? Maybe you're curious. But if you're coming back week after week, it's because you're saying, I believe this stuff. I'm a Christian. So here's the question. What evidence is there to back that claim? In what way does your faith demonstrate itself in your life? Now I want to be I want to be care I want you to I want to urge you to be careful in the way that you consider that question because like I said at the beginning of today's message, how you answer these types of questions will frame the way that you think about the gospel. So let me make myself very clear on what I'm not asking. I am not asking, is there evidence of sin in your life? As if that would demonstrate that you're not a Christian, because there are moments where your faith is not evidenced by obedience. The question here is not, do you obey perfectly? The question is simply, is there some evidence in your actions of spiritual life? Go back to the analogy that we've been using throughout this morning's message. Uh, right? a, a doctor isn't going to declare a patient dead simply because they aren't in perfect health. In fact, a lot of times patients can be in pretty poor health. You know, they might need insulin, uh, for instance, to balance out their blood sugar if they have diabetes, or they might need to have a, a pacemaker if they've suffered from heart disease. In some extreme cases, they might even need machines to help them breathe. But the point is, as deteriorated as the patient's health may be, so long as they demonstrate some signs of life, no matter how faint, they're still regarded as alive. That's the question I'm asking here. I'm not asking, you know, are you so healthy that you can go and win an Olympic gold medal? No, I'm asking, you know, do you have a pulse? If someone set their ear down by... Your mouth, would they hear and feel a little bit of air move? Because if the answer to that question is no, if you're saying there's never been even a single moment in my life when I've truly obeyed God, and specifically, specifically because of my faith in Christ, then you may need to ask yourself, have I ever truly believed in the first place? And let me clarify what I mean one more time. I'm not asking simply, do you happen to do Christian things? As someone who at one time realized that they weren't a Christian after thinking for many years that they were, I can tell you, it's very easy in our culture to look like a Christian on the outside without having any real and genuine faith. I mean, before I came to know Christ, I I, I didn't get into trouble at school, uh, but that was because I didn't like getting in trouble. I didn't go out and party and get drunk. I, I didn't even swear until maybe, I think, senior year of high school, maybe freshman year of college. My, my friends even dubbed me the conscience because I was the voice in our group that when someone was about to do something bad or stupid, I would speak up and say, hey guys, I don't think we should do this. But all of that was because I didn't really take pleasure in those things. I, I didn't really enjoy partying. To this day, I still hate the way that people act when they get drunk. I don't want anything to do with it. Never have. Never been a temptation for me. Fact is, up until a day I finally repented, though, none of my so-called obedience had anything whatsoever at all to do with my faith in Christ. I didn't look like it on the outside, but the truth was I was just as rebellious as anyone else. The moment I had to make a choice between something I wanted 
and something that Christ commanded me to do, my desires won out every single time. I was an an idolater the same as everyone else. It just looked different. And most people assumed it looked different because I was a Christian. So again, let me clarify. The question that I'm asking is, is there any evidence in your life of an obedience that's driven specifically by faith? Do you understand the difference? You know, like Abraham probably didn't want to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? But his faith in the goodness and wisdom of God, even the hope of redemption, drove him to follow God's command anyways. Is there any evidence of something like that in your life? Are there moments when your desires conflict with God's desires and yet you yield specifically because of your confidence in the love of God revealed through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Because if not, then I think it's very hard to say that you're really a Christian. I mean, how can you go around calling yourself a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then not exercise any kind of visible, tangible faith in His name? That's the question that Jesus Himself asks at the end of the Sermon on the Plain. As He describes the character of those who will enter His kingdom, He says, Why do you call Me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I mean, there's a basic inconsistency there, right? That's what Jesus says again in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It should be pretty obvious. You can't claim a relationship with Christ and then live a life that's characterized by disobedience to his commands. There's nothing Christian about that. In the words of 1 John 3, 9-10, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So what characterizes your life? I'll tell you that that personally, there was a point where I had to admit that there had never been a single moment in my life when I truly obeyed Christ. And that I couldn't continue calling myself a Christian and live in that condition. Perhaps when you stop to think about it, that's what you need to do as well. If you do come to that realization, then what do you do? Right? So maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're realizing that's me. I've, there's not been a single moment in my life when I've obeyed. Not by faith. If that's you, what do you do? I'll tell you, we don't find the answer here in James, but I'll tell you what you do. You confess your unbelief and you turn to Christ and you ask Him to give you the grace to believe. You see, there can be a temptation upon realizing that salvation is evidenced by works There can be a temptation to then go and start doing stuff in an effort to find assurance through your good deeds. But that's not how this works. Abraham wasn't justified by his works. He was justified, rather, by his faith. And the works merely gave evidence to that justifying faith. It's like what James says in verse 22. Faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So Abraham works but they were works that were rooted in his faith. And that is why he was justified, not because of the works, but because of the faith that his works pointed back to. So if you start going to try to add works apart from faith, your efforts are going to be futile because it's faith that saves, not works. The point that you should be taking away this morning is that if you have not works then it's a sign that you have not faith. Your lack of faith is the real problem that needs to be fixed, not your lack of works. And so the place you begin is by going and asking Jesus to grant you faith. And once again, I'd personally testify to how this works. 
I'll tell you, just because I realized that I had never obeyed in faith, that didn't mean that I immediately walked away and started doing that. No, it meant that actually I was suddenly very conflicted. Because I realized I had all these desires that needed to submit to Jesus, which I did not want to submit to Jesus. And yet I was still convicted by the truth of the gospel. I would be like the demons in this passage. I could see, yeah, God's one. This is all true. I know this is true. And so I asked God to help me see the gospel, and He opened my eyes and my heart through faith. It's the beauty and the hope of the gospel that overpowers the desires of our sinful flesh and transforms our life into the image of God. So if you do not do, then ask God to help you believe. Jesus most assuredly promises. He says, Our Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So if you're realizing that you don't believe that James is describing you, that you are spiritually dead, then the place you begin is by asking God to make you alive. By providing you the kind of faith that we're talking about this morning. You can't resurrect your own heart. But God promises to do it for you when you come to Him confessing your sin and seeking His grace. Let's pray.